I'm honored to be here with you today. I love your pastors, Joe and Stephen. I enjoy the chances that I have to get together with them. A little intimidated to preach in Joe's place because he's such a knowledgeable man. What a great man of God and a great preacher. You're blessed here, and I hope you know that. I want to start with prayer, and I want to focus on just praying about the church in Texas and some of the needs there, and then I'll pray for our time here in the Word, okay? Would you join me? Heavenly Father, you are holy and mighty and majestic. There's none like you. You are glorious and powerful. You are all-knowing. You're the creator. You're the infinite God. And so much of that we just understand from your word, but in reality we struggle to understand it because it's beyond our comprehension. It's beyond what our limited minds can even take in. So Father, these songs of praise and these words of prayer we just lift before you as an offering to a holy and worthy God. May you accept them. Lord, as a body of believers, we can't imagine what it's like for those who are left behind from this church in Texas. And Lord, we're reminded that we live in a world filled with evil. And Father, we, uh, we just lift those people up who are affected by that evil and those family members who are there, even whatever they're doing this morning, we pray for them. And Lord, we're reminded that this world is not our home. That we are destined to be with you for eternity where there is no more tears. But Lord, we just pray for them. Father, for Pastor Joe and his family and just the grieving time they are in, we pray that you just be with them as well. God, would you guide us today as we go into your word and speak through me. And Lord, would you give each of us exactly what we need from your word today and be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. It's not my custom to uh, just preach in the middle of a book somewhere, but obviously I'm uh, just coming in one time and doing it. So I want to give you a little background. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4 today, and you'll see a bunch of uh, verses in there. Don't worry, I'm not going to do exposition on all of those. I'll preach... Uh, something less than two hours and we'll get out of here in a decent time. I'm just kidding. It will be less, than, but I'm kidding. Anyway, just a, an overview, a, a theme verse of Luke is really Luke 19.10 where it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Again, I want to give some context for today's uh, message. Again, uh, Luke does a wonderful job of, of outlining uh, Jesus' life and uh, goes into even the genealogy. And the genealogy is interesting. His genealogy uh, follows all the way back to, to God. This is Adam, who's the son of God. An interesting thing there, because as we look at the life of Jesus in Luke and in the Gospels, we see he's the son of God. And we see uh, an interesting parallel there. We've got Jesus as God in flesh. Uh, 1 Corinthians says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. I want you to notice the two references to Son of God and the references to Adam and Jesus, or first and second Adam as they're sometimes called. Romans 5 says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, 
much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Again, that first and second Adam and the difference there. Even as Jesus then was led out into the wilderness and He was tempted, and He did not give in to temptation. I'm not going to expand on that this morning. Uh, He prevailed over the temptation. Again, the difference between those two Adams. We also see here just a quick note I want to make, and that is that we see sin for what it is. And sometimes we want to say, sin is not that big a deal. It's, It's all right. God will forgive me. And I want to caution you against that line of thinking. For us to think that sin is no big deal is to look at our crucified and bloody Savior hanging on a cross and say, no big deal. I don't think we can do that, can we? Because that's why He was there. I like what Professor Chapel says. He says, when we choose to give in to temptation and sin, we love sin more than our Savior. Jesus prevailed against temptation and did not sin and set us an example for Him. 106-year-old cowboy in Texas recently passed away. He was asked on his last birthday earlier this year the secret to his longevity. And he said for the past 50 years, he sprinkled a little gunpowder on his cereal each morning. When he died, he left behind eight children, 21 grandchildren, 32 great-grandchildren, and a 15-foot hole in the wall of the crematorium. (laughs) Now you watch this. I'm going to masterfully thread this in and make it valuable, okay? I think we can all agree that poorly chosen or foolish words can be explosive. Now, that's the best I can do to tie it in. So it's, it's tied in. Don't tell Joe. All right. But really, think about that. Think about the power of words or ill-chosen words or po- poorly spoken words. Uh, I think one of our national figures is proving that concept all the time. And many of them, actually. A little time in the book of Proverbs would go a long way, I think. Today we're going to see how Jesus upset people. And it was not because His words were poorly chosen. His words were true and appropriate, but not well received. I think today you're going to see in this passage, hopefully something you haven't seen before, a little bit in how we respond to God and what we expect from Him. Look with me at Luke 4, verse 16. Luke 4, 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes in all of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I understand here that Jesus is dropping sort of a a bomb, if you will, in their midst. He's making a very, very powerful declaration about himself. This was his official uh, public revelation of himself. He drew attention... uh, of all those who saw him. 
But not all reacted the same or their reactions were stayed consistent. People will react differently to Jesus based upon their own ideas about Him. I want you to think about that. Mankind cannot define Jesus. It can only react to the reality of who He is. I want you to hang on to that thought. Because it has a big, uh, a big effect on how we see God move in our lives. We don't get to define the truth about Him. He is the truth. You will hear many different things said about Christ, but the truth is what matters. Now look at the response and let's examine uh, what he said in a little more detail. Verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through in their midst, he went away. you got to wonder, what just happened here? I mean, how does this go so badly so quick? Go from a positive reaction to a, such a negative shift. I would think it's pretty negative that they want to throw him off a cliff, don't you think? All of a sudden, isn't this Joe's boy? By the way, that might further indicate why he gave us such a detailed genealogy in this book. Understand that Nazareth is a nowhere town, and, and, and people are saying, could this Jesus really be from here? But Jesus jumps to the heart of the matter. He says, you've heard about what I've done and what I can do, and you'll want, me to pr- uh, you'll want more proof because I'm from here. Right? He's saying, I'm your hometown boy, so you're going to want a lot from me. And then he says, remember Elijah and all those in need, the drought and the famine, but he only helped this widow in Zarephath. And remember Elisha? There were a lot of lepers, but it was only Naaman. This response filled them with wrath. What is it about those two references that that upset them so? That they push him to the edge of the town with the hope of pushing him off the cliff. I'd say the the shift has gone very negative toward him. Now these are his own hometown people. So, we can see that maybe some of the obvious reasons and little less obvious reasons why they're reacting this way. First of all, Jesus is reading or, or quoting selectively from the book of Isaiah. 
There's probably a little bit of Isaiah 58 threaded in to that, but also Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of, of our God, and to comfort all who, who had mourned. So what Jesus has said has riled him up early on, and even more so as he continues. He includes that the time has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but he leaves out of what it says in Isaiah, and the day of vengeance of our God. This probably would have gotten their attention, and then he sits down. Now, if that seems strange to you, you've got to understand what a day in the life of the temple would have been like. A normal practice in going to the temple or the synagogue would be that they would get together and they would do some singing together. Oftentimes, Psalm 145, 146, all the way through 150, some of those. Uh, they would recite from the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, out of Deuteronomy 6. And then there would be readings from the Torah. Then there would be a a number of benedictions shared. Then there would be readings from the prophets, which is what Jesus is recorded as doing here. And then an exposition or a sermon. And that would be done sitting down. After he read from the prophet, he would sit down and speak to the people. Then there would be Aaron's benediction that we find in Numbers 6, where it says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And everybody would say, Amen. So why do things end the way they did that day? Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah. He sits down. The things that He says then cause them to skip the end of this procedure drive him to the edge of town so they can throw him off the edge he says today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing he's saying i'm the one to do these things but it also seems that he's communicating that the day of vengeance was not yet come had not yet come understand they would have wanted this They want the leader to come and step in and and lift them from their oppression. The text also suggests that they were fond of Jesus' words until He applied it to them. I want you to imagine with me now, okay? You've got a hometown boy. And... He emerges as this miracle worker. He's he's got quite a reputation. And think about it. You've you've known him for years. You've known Jesus for years. You noticed he was different, that he was honest and kind, abnormally wise and insightful. He never lost it with anybody. He was always helpful. He was always focused. He was extraordinary. In reality, nobody in town could say anything bad about him. Then what you hear what he did in nearby Cana at a Canaan at a wedding feast. And he's been healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, releasing people of demonic uh, possession. Everybody's talking about him, and now he's back in hometown. So you've got great expectations, right? 
If He's done these things for other people, people He didn't even know, how much more will He do for you? The people that He grew up around or grew up with. So of course, you drop everything that day to go and hear Him in the synagogue. Matter of fact, so does everybody else in town. They're thinking He's going to meet our needs today. He reads from the famous passage in Isaiah, claims He's the one, and claims that he knows what we're thinking, and, and that's that we want him to do great things here. He happens to be right, but he claims he knows that. I mean, why wouldn't we want that, right? He's from our hometown. Then he says this cryptic thing, no, no prophet is acceptable in his own town. We're all wondering what he means. Then he references back to Elijah and to Elisha. Where's he going with this? Let's look a little closer at what he says to them. Look back at 4.25. He says, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. He says, In truth I tell you, in Elijah's time, many widows, three and a half years of drought, great famine. Where? In Israel. Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So why does he reference this? And then look at verse 27. And he says, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Okay, so now he goes to Elisha's time. There's many lepers. They had a great need. Where? In Israel. None of them were claimed or cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And it's at this point wrath. They want to push him off a cliff. Do you see why yet? Jesus references two Old Testament heroes that didn't come to the rescue of their own people. There were many widows. Great famine in Israel. These were Jews, good Hebrew people. And God sends Elijah to a Gentile widow in Sidon. So Jesus, in his hometown, is referencing this story. Then he shares, there were many lepers in Israel. Jewish, Hebrew lepers. But God sends Elisha only to heal a Gentile man from Syria. Understanding why they're upset yet? Understand how much the Jews look down on the Gentiles. I want you to understand, racism is not new. It's not new. They look down on the Gentiles, and here Jesus communicates somehow that the faith of Gentiles is more important than being a Jew. Jesus is saying, just like Elijah and Elisha and what they did, I'm not going to do healings and signs and wonders here. I'm not going to prove myself to you by doing amazing things and showing you great signs and wonders. Can you see how they get a little angry? 
You're thinking you'll do great things for others, but not us who you've known. But there's even more here. I want you to look at the story in 1 Kings 17, verse 8. Let's just see if we can see a little more. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And she was going to bring it. And he called her and said, And bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. Only a handful of flour in a jar. And a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks. that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son. That we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Don't fear, or do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and your son. And thus says the Lord God of Israel, The jar of flour will not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and her household ate for many days. And the jar of oil was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. And what about Elisha and Naaman? Look with me over at 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Remember, he's this commander of a Syrian army and he's got leprosy and his, his wife's servant was from Israel and she says, oh, there's somebody in Israel who could help you out. So he goes to his king and asks him to send a letter and then he sends a letter and, uh, to the other king and the other king, the king of Israel says, what am I, God? Can I heal people? And, and Elisha's like, don't worry about it. Let him come to me. All right, let's pick it back up. Verse 10, and Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and he went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of of a little child, and he was clean. 
Why else might Jesus have referenced those two accounts? In both cases, they had to believe and obey before they saw the miraculous power of God. Think of that widow holding her hungry child. The tough decision she had to make. Do I, do I feed this prophet the last of my resources or do I feed my son? She had to obey before she saw the miraculous power of God. And, and think about Naaman. He had to believe somehow that going into that water and dipping himself seven times would bring healing. And he certainly didn't want to go in that water very much. I've been in the Jordan. It was very cold. Maybe that was why. I don't know. But he didn't want to do it. And I want to go back to those hometown people in Nazareth for a minute and say, if we're honest, was it so far out of the realm of reason to assume that that they had certain expectations and, and assumptions about what Jesus would do? I mean, they're expecting sort of a favor from a hometown friend, and maybe that's not so far out of the matter, but, but, but why would Jesus do that? Why would it go that way? I love Charles Swindoll's quote. He said, When people came to Jesus wanting to believe, He gave them signs to validate their decision. When people came to Jesus looking for a reason to reject Him, He gave them all they hoped to find. Isn't that interesting? Maybe you were there. Or maybe you are there. A skeptic. and Just kind of coming at Him so doubtful. Like He needs to prove something to you. Or are you coming in that faith? Wanting to believe. And receiving those signs to validate it. For you and I, I think we, like the people of Nazareth, are foolish to come up with reasons to deny the deity of Jesus. He doesn't have to do anything the way we want Him to do it. Do you realize that? He doesn't have to do anything the way we want Him to do it. Because even the ones who watched Him do miracles and, and cast out demons and, and all those things like that, we see time and time again in the Gospels that they found reasons to turn on Jesus. They see firsthand all these incredible things of what He does and they still turn on Him. It's a matter of the heart. Do you know we don't read of Jesus ever returning to Nazareth? 
pretty sad, isn't it? It's his hometown. And he goes there and knowing they're skeptical, knowing they want, they want to show more than they want to believe. And they want him to come on their terms. And he wants nothing to do with it. To the point where he parallels that to, to those two Old Testament passages where clearly God didn't want him, they, those two prophets to do anything in Israel at that time. He references those two stories. They're so mad at him, they want to throw him off a cliff. Why? They have their understanding of what he should do. The fact was, Jesus knew the people of Nazareth wanted the proof before belief. And their rejection of him would cause them to miss out on so much. The rejection of Jesus as he truly is defines the ultimate mistake. I'm going to say that statement again, and I want you to listen to it. It can't, you can't tweak this statement and make it different. The rejection of Jesus, listen, as he truly is, defines the ultimate mistake. I didn't say the rejection of your idea of Jesus or the rejection of, of the culture's idea of Jesus or the reje- rejection of somebody's opinion of Jesus. I'm talking about the rejection of Jesus as He truly is defines the ultimate mistake. He is not whom we personally define Him to be. So I want you to think for a minute. What are your personal assumptions and ideas about Jesus? What would you expect if He came? How would you expect Him to treat you? What would you expect Him to do for you? If Chillicothe had been Jesus' hometown, would He have passed through and left quickly because of prideful assumptions? Or would He have found people of true belief Jesus is God in flesh, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior, and the King. And He doesn't have to prove it to you. Also, maybe the words He read from Isaiah where he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Maybe those words were more true of them than they realized. Came to proclaim good news to the poor. The people of Nazareth would have been very poor. Please understand that. It's the same poor we see used in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. It doesn't have to be financially poor. It could have been there spiritually poor. He's talking about them in that regard. Maybe they were captives, but it was captives of their own pride. We're good Jews. 
We're from Jesus' hometown, therefore He's going to bless us. They were certainly blind. They were blind to who He was. Because that is the only way you would ever want to push the Savior off a cliff. Maybe they were oppressed by their own hard hearts. Their own expectations. If Jesus really is who He says He is, then of course He will do this because that's my logic. And He needs to follow it. Ever had a time where you want to begin to doubt God or turn on God because He didn't do what you expected Him to do? He didn't jump when you said jump, even though you prayed and said please? Our Kent Hughes shares this story. I want to share it with you. It's, it's microscopic print as far as you know. A large, prestigious British church had three mission churches under its care. On the first Sunday of each new year, all the members of the mission churches would come to the parent church for a combined communion service. In those mission churches, located in the slums of, major, of a major city, were some outstanding cases of conversion, thieves and burglars and others. But all knelt as brothers and sisters, side by side at the communion rail. On one such occasion, the pastor saw a former burglar kneeling beside a judge of the Supreme Court of England, the very judge who had sent him to jail where he had served seven years. After his release, this burglar had been converted and became a Christian worker. After the service, the judge was walking out with the pastor and said to him, Did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? The two walked along in silence for a few minutes. And the judge said, What a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement. A marvelous miracle of grace indeed. The judge then inquired, But to whom do you refer? The former convict? The pastor said. The judge said, I was not referring to him. I was thinking of myself. The minister, surprised, replied, You were thinking of yourself? I don't understand. You see, the judge went on, it's not surprising that the burglar received God's grace when he left jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. But when he understood what Jesus could do for him and could be his Savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. And he knew how much he needed that help. But look at me, I was taught from the earliest infancy to live as a gentleman, that my word was to be my bond. And that I was to say my prayers and go to church and take communion and so on. I went through Oxford, obtained my degree, was called to the bar, and eventually became a judge. I was sure I was all I needed to be, though in fact I too was a sinner. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I'm the greater miracle. All who bow to Him, acknowledging their need and hopelessness, receive eternal life, are miracles of grace. A couple of thoughts to take with you today. 
first one. This declaration Jesus made about himself in Luke 4 is just as relevant to us today. Second would be a word of caution. Be cautious about saying things like, God, if you will, I will believe or I will follow. God owes you no further proof. No matter what you think He owes you, He owes you no further proof. Be careful. I think we've all done it, haven't we? God, God, if you only do this, then, then I'll be convinced you're God. Or God, you, you certainly need to do this because this is a bad situation. Or if you love me, you're going to do this, God, because God owes you nothing more than he's already given you in Christ. Come to him in belief first. Believe and then encounter the miracles of God. I'll leave you with one last question. Do you believe? Would you join me for a word of prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, there is none like You. Lord, we might be guilty of placing judgment on these Nazarene people and wanting to criticize them or wonder what's wrong with them that they would be so foolish to cast the Savior out. But if we're honest, Lord, we know that each of us would probably would have come with our own agendas that day as well. That we would have wanted to see great things happen or experience great things rather than acknowledge greatness in their presence. Father, Your ways are higher than ours. We don't understand them sometimes. We don't understand why You'll do miracles in someone else's life or around someone else, but it seems like You won't in ours. Father, would You take away from us that desire that You prove Yourself to us and help us recognize that You've already proven who You are. Father, for any of us who are still struggling to believe and struggling to commit to who You are, may we just do it simply on the merit of who Jesus is and what He did on the cross. That redeeming act. That grace that changes everything. Lord, may we be able to say that's enough. I believe and I will follow. And God, You do whatever You you desire to do because You know best. You don't owe me anything, Lord, but I'll take everything You give me. Father, may You be exalted and may You be praised. Father, I too just ask for this body of believers. And right now I just pray and ask that You would bring great blessings upon this body of believers. May You watch over their households. May You strengthen marriages and unite families. May You help them be effective as they reach out with the Gospel truth to those who they work with or go to school with or live near. May there be just a powerful outreach of the Gospel with the children and the youth and 
the adults. Father, may this community be changed powerfully by a band of people gathered together in complete faith in a powerful God. Lord, would you work and move and show yourself because they believe. In Jesus' name, amen.